So if you grew up uh, in and around the church, you are no doubt familiar with the New Testament story of Zacchaeus. And as soon as you hear the name Zacchaeus, a little song pops into your mind, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. How many of you know that little tune? If you don't, you are not missing a thing. I can promise you that. <clears throat> well, when we hear, when we hear uh, certain stories growing up, they become children's stories for us, right? We have them in children's Bibles, and so we read them to our kids. And then when we're adults and we read the same story, we still look at them as children's stories. And children's stories need to be, right? Because they're for children, they need to be nice, and they need to be neat, and they need to be a little docile, and they need to be a little, uh, I don't know, vanilla, so that we can make sure our children understand them. And so then when we get to be an adults, we look at these stories again, and we say, oh, I'll read over that one quickly, because that's a what? That's a children's story. Well, I can promise you this, Zacchaeus is anything but a children's story. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the German writer and pastor, said this, the story of Zacchaeus is one of the most dangerous passages, dangerous stories in all of Scripture. Have you ever thought of Zacchaeus as being a dangerous story? Take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 19, and let's see what is so dangerous about Jesus calling a tax collector down from a tree. As you're finding the passage, let me set the context. Jesus' public ministry lasted for three years. The first year was the year of inauguration. Jesus was just getting going. His baptism, uh, temptation in the desert, calling the disciples. He starts preaching. People are getting to know him. Year one, year of inauguration. Year two is the year of popularity. Uh, people are coming and they're thronging to see Jesus. They want to know who this man is. They want to see who he is. They want to put a face with the stories they've been hearing about the healings and the miracles. Year of popularity. The last year, and we're in that year now, is the year of opposition. In Jerusalem, the religious leaders are plotting ways to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus is never going to go to the cross on their timing. It's going to be his, and now it's his timing. And so he is making his way down to Jerusalem, that last trip to Jerusalem. In chapter 17, verse 11, sets the context for our passage today. Now, on his way to Jerusalem. Luke says he is going there to die. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Two of the three years of Jesus' ministry was spent up here in this area of Galilee. That's where he was from, Nazareth. His uh, headquarters was right here in Capernaum. And he would go back and forth down to Jerusalem and then back up. But two of the three years spent uh, up in this northern area. Now he is traveling, Luke tells us, between this border right here of Galilee and Samaria. He's making his way down. Most Jews did not travel through Samaria. They crossed over the Jordan. And Jesus is going to go down, making his way finally to Jerusalem. He has a stop before he gets there. Now, he tells his disciples clearly why they are going to Jerusalem. Look at chapter 18, verse 31. 
Jesus took the twelve aside and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He's going to be handed over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him. They're going to insult him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him. They're going to kill him. And on the third day, he's going to rise again. Jesus has been telling his disciples this all along. He gets very clear right here uh, in Luke chapter 18. But check out verse 34. The disciples still didn't get it. They didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what was taking place. So think about that as we go uh, follow Jesus to the cross. The disciples aren't getting this. Finally, after the resurrection, they understand As Jesus was going down to Jerusalem, he stopped by a city named Jericho. Jericho was a a well-known city in the Old Testament. Uh, Remember, the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. God said, don't ever rebuild a city on that exact site. One uh, king tried to, Ahab, and he died because of it. But the New Testament city of Jerusalem is about two miles from the Old Testament ruins of Jerusalem, and it was a great city. It had a warm temperature, beautiful city. Herod had his winter palace there because of the temperatures. He built beautiful pools, sunken gardens, parks for his pleasure, parks and and the pleasure of his guests. Uh, uh, Jericho is still a beautiful city today, and you can even see some of the the parks that they say were there during Jesus' time. It was also a border town. And so when you went into Jericho, you had to pay taxes, custom taxes. And their money was plentiful uh, for this city of Jericho. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was what? Passing through. Luke is reminding us. He's telling us, don't forget where Jesus is going. We're going to take some stops here along the way. There's going to be some stories along the way. But don't forget, Jesus is passing through. He is on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, in uh, Jericho lived a man named Zacchaeus. Look at verse 2. A man was there named Zacchaeus, and he was not just a tax collector. He was what? He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. Uh, Tax collectors in that time were hated. If you were a Jew and you heard the name tax collector, your blood would start to boil. The tax collectors had sold out to the Roman government, and a Roman government was taxing the Jews into poverty. They were taxed for everything. They sold tax franchises back then. Rome wanted to figure out the cheapest way they could collect all this money. So McDonald's stole this from the Roman government. And you could buy, if you had the money, a tax franchise. You would bid on it, and it went to the highest bidder. And then the government says, this is how much tax we have to collect. But there is a no-cap collection. You you can, uh, no-cap commission, you can get anything you want. So the system was fraught with dishonesty and fraud and overcharging and bribery and extortion. Of course, if you refuse to pay the tax, that that that, that tax collector could have been exorbitant, He'll put you in prison, or you get beaten by the Roman government. So while the Jews were living in poverty and fear, these tax collectors were living a lifestyle of of, of wealth. If you remember, uh, when we talked about the story of Matthew, when Jesus chose Matthew, the tax collector who was at a booth, we talked about two types of 
tax collectors. There was first uh, the uh, Gabai tax collector. They, they uh, collected property and income and poll taxes. And then there was the Mokis. They uh, collected taxes from imports and exports and goods and travel. There were two kinds of Mokis. There was the great Mokis, the franchise owner, and the little Mokis that manned the tax offices. Remember, Matthew was, was manning a tax booth. He was a little Moki, but Zacchaeus wasn't. Zacchaeus was a great Moki. He was a franchise owner. He was a chief tax collector. All the tax collectors in that area reported to him. And he had more money than he knew what to do with. His house was huge. His clothes were no doubt expensive. His servants were many. He walked with that air. You know what that air is, don't you? That air of notoriety and and status. But even with all that, something was going on in his heart. Something was stirring. Look at verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. I love that statement. Here's Zacchaeus. He's got it all. Except for one major thing. And he wanted to see who Jesus was. But being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So check this out. Here's this man of notoriety. This man's never in a hurry. He never has to be in a hurry. But he pulls up his expensive robe and he runs like a little 12-year-old boy ahead of the crowd and he climbs up in a sycamore tree because he knew Jesus was coming that way. Now, when you study Scripture, when you read these stories... You want to interact with them. And so you start asking them questions. And so one question would be, what was going on in Zacchaeus' life? Why would Zacchaeus want to know who Jesus was? What would spark that? Is there anything in Scripture that tells us what sparked that in his life? Nothing for sure, but maybe a couple ideas. Earlier, as Jesus was entering Jericho, just in chapter 18... As Jesus is entering Jericho, right on the outskirts, there was a blind beggar there. The beggar had probably been there for years, so everyone knew who he was. And he heard that Jesus was passing by, and so the beggar cried out for Jesus. The people told him to shut up. Don't, don't bother Jesus. But Jesus went right over, and he healed that blind beggar right outside of Jericho, right before he came into town. And so that was a, that was a buzz, Right? Here's a man who touched this blind beggar, and the guy could see. So maybe, maybe uh, he just wanted to go, Zacchaeus just wanted to go see who this guy was who could, who could heal a, a blind man. Maybe Zacchaeus had, had heard earlier about Jesus' teaching. Israel is not a very big country. Uh, 125 miles wide, about, uh, along, about 60 miles wide. And so the buzz of Jesus was, was, was all throughout the country. Remember, this is his third year of ministry. People knew about him. And so maybe Zacchaeus had already heard about Jesus, thought maybe he was the Messiah, the anointed one, and he wanted to go see who he was. Or maybe Zacchaeus was just tired of being a wealthy hated man. Francis Bacon, the English philosopher, said this, money is a great servant, but a bad master. And I've talked to people who have a lot of money, and, you know, some of us say, man, it'd be fantastic to have a lot of money, right? 
talk to people who really have it, believers, and they'll say, it's a burden. How, how do I use all of this? I'm going to stand before God one day. What a responsibility. I remember talking to one guy, and I remember it just he just... He was an older guy, and he kind of looked out the window, and he said, you know, God has blessed us with so much, and, and we've been generous, but have I given away enough? Have I used too much on our stuff? We don't have to have a lot of money to ask that question, do we? Have I given away enough? Have I kept too much for myself. I got an answer for that one day. So maybe that was Zacchaeus's issue. He had it all. He had a closet full of clothes. He was just spiritually naked. He had a house full of stuff. He was just spiritually empty. He had a bulging portfolio, but he had this shriveled heart. So maybe he ran like a 12-year-old boy because maybe Jesus was the one who could fill that need in his heart. Look at verse 5. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going to stay at your house. Some cool things going on in this verse. Number one, authority. Jesus didn't know who Zacchaeus was, or the people didn't think he knew who, Jesus was, uh, who Zacchaeus was. And in that day... If you, could, if you could call out the name of someone you never met, you were a prophet. And so Jesus right then and there proved to the people that he had authority. Also, intimacy. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I want to go to your house. I don't want to just talk to you up in the tree. Come on down. We're going to go to your house. We're going to have a conversation together. We want to meet eyeball to eyeball. We want to meet one-on-one. Not only is there authority in this passage, but there's intimacy. And then there's urgency. Check out what Jesus says. Come down when? Immediately. Don't wait one more nanosecond in that tree. Get down here, and we're going to go to your house. There is urgency here. When Jesus calls us to do something, there is always urgency. We don't say, well, Jesus, I'll come down. I've got to check my calendar here, and I'll come down if it works out into my day. We work our calendar around Jesus, not Jesus around our calendar. Luke chapter 19, verse 6, one of my favorite verses. Last week, last time we were together, Scott uh, uh, taught on the rich young ruler. Remember that? And the rich young ruler, he wanted to see Jesus just as bad as Zacchaeus. And he had probably just as much money as Zacchaeus. And he runs to Jesus, and remember, he falls in front of Jesus, and he says, Lord, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you keep the commandments. And he rattled them off the commandments, and the guy said, I've got that. I've been doing that since I was a kid. Well, Jesus knew the man's heart, and he realized that the man was actually missing commandment number one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This man was loving his money more than God. And so Jesus doesn't always, in Scripture, he doesn't do this to Zacchaeus. He doesn't say, get rid of your money. But to this rich young man, he, he knew that was standing in the way. And so he said, go sell all you have and follow me. And you'll inherit the kingdom of God. And remember what Mark said? 
the man's face fell. He was sad. And the man walked away from Jesus. Walked away from Jesus. Now check out the contrast here. That man walked away from Jesus. Jesus tells Zacchaeus, hey, come down. And so verse 6, he came down, what? At once. And he welcomed Jesus gladly. Wealthy man, the rich young ruler, he walked away. Zacchaeus, more money than he knew what to do with, he welcomed Jesus gladly. Well, they went to Zacchaeus' house, and as you can imagine, the people didn't like it. Think of the worst sinner that you have ever met. Think of the guy that you would not want to see in heaven. Think of the guy that uh, has been uh, taxing you into poverty, and now Jesus is eating at that guy's house, and they say the line they've been saying with Jesus for three years now, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. We're not sinners. He is, and he's hanging out with a sinner. You know, most of the time, when that line is uh, given to criticize Jesus, most of the time, it's Jesus who speaks up. But here, Jesus doesn't speak. It's Zacchaeus who speaks up. Look at verse 8. Tremendous. Hey, this is where it gets dangerous here. Look at verse 8. But Zacchaeus stood up, and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. I'm, everything I have, Lord, you didn't ask me to do this. But I am so taken by you. I want to be your follower. You have brought grace into my home by you, be, by you being here. You are God. I believe in you. I trust you. And, and, and I know some of this money I have gotten is from ill-gotten gain. I got it by fraud and bribery and extortion. I'm given half of it away. And then anyone that I have cheated, I'm going to pay them back four times the amount. Zacchaeus knew the Bible. He knew the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the price of restitution was four times what you had stolen. If I stole your sheep... And then I ate it, so I couldn't give your sheep back. And then you knew I stole it. I had to give you four sheep back, four times. So Zacchaeus knew that. So if I've cheated anyone, I, I will take on the full penalty from the Old Testament. I'm going to pay them back four times the amount. Okay, let's spend just a little time in verse 8. This, this verse is extremely important, and we want to work our way through it. It's a verse about this one word called, if I get a blank screen, called repentance. Here's what repentance means, and it is critical in not only coming to Christ, but in our walk with Christ. Repentance means a change. Repentance means a reverse. So here's God. And here's me. And when I start living my life, I'm headed my direction. I want to do my things. I want my career. Uh, I want my stuff. I want my money. 
I want to spend it on myself. I may be generous here and there, but in my heart, I am selfish. I am a sinner. My back is turned on God. There is no one who seeks God, not even one, Romans says. So I'm, I'm walking away from God. But then something happens. God interrupts my life. It seems from a human standpoint that I made the decision, but it's God interrupting my life. He, he brings into my life a discontentment, like Zacchaeus. I want to go see who Jesus is. Maybe it's when you have a baby. A lot of times when young couples have a baby, they say, oh my goodness, what a miracle. i got to get serious about this. I, I don't know how God interrupted your life, but he interrupts our life. And so repentance is this. I'm headed this way, and I change directions. Now I'm headed this way. That is repentance. That has to happen at salvation. Now please hear this. Repentance, you don't change directions so you can become a Christian. If that's the case, that'd be salvation by, gra- by works. And it's not salvation by works, it's salvation by grace. When we understand God's grace, when we understand what he's done in our life, we want to respond to that. He's helping us respond to that. And so we change course. We change directions. Now, here's the question. I am all about eternal security. I am all about understanding that you're a child of God and will forever be. But let's just do first things first, all right? If you say you're a believer and you walk down an aisle, or you signed a card, or you prayed a prayer, I don't know how, what happened where you say you're a believer, and you have seen no change in your life. None. You're doing the same things you used to do. You're headed the same direction you used to. You're just as selfish as you used to be. Then let's just do first things first. Are you, I will love to give you assurance of salvation when you're a believer, but first, are you a believer? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are gone, what? New things have come. We've We've changed directions. We're going a different way. So have you done that? Now, repentance, there's two parts of this reversal in repentance. So we're looking at repentance here. Now, we've repented. We've, we, we've, Christ has interrupted us in, in our life. And in response to his grace, we've changed directions. We're headed the different way. Now, we are a believer. We are a follower of Christ. Now, in our believer, in the life of a believer and a follower of Christ, there still needs to be repentance because we're not going to be perfect. The old sinful nature is not eradicated. It's not done away with. So as a believer, we're headed toward God. We're a child of God. We have that assurance. But sometimes we what? We get off the path. We take a detour. And when we take a detour, then we have to Repent, and we have to change directions. We have to get back on and do the things. And that's going to happen many, many times throughout our life. We always need to be those as believers who keep that clean slate before God. Maybe it's for you early in the morning. Maybe it's for you late at night to say, God, show me where I got off the path today. Before I go to sleep, I want to repent of my sins. I, I, want, I want you to tell me where, I'm, where I messed up. I want to get back on the path. Maybe it's a sin of commission, an active sin. We do what we shouldn't. Maybe it's a sin of a passive sin, a sin of omission. We don't do what we should. First John is written to believers. And First John says this, 
If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So I tell you what, if I lay my head on the pillow at night and say, hey, Ron, great job today, you didn't sin, I'm a liar. If I claim to be without sin, I'm deceiving myself. If we, and, here's the good news, if we what? Confess our sins, repent of our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. So if I keep taking that detour, God's going to forgive me. If I keep taking the same detour, I may need to build some other things in my life so I don't keep going down that detour. But I can always know as a believer, he's going to forgive me. So the first part of repentance, this is so critical, the first part of repentance is reversal. Happens when we become a Christian, and then, as we are a Christian, we continually confess our sins to God. Here's the second part, and it's pretty tough. It's in this part of repentance. First, there's what? Reverse. This is a hard one. Restitution. It's part of repentance. Let's check this out. What does Zacchaeus do? First of all, he says, I'm going to give half my possessions to the poor. But then he says, if I have cheated anyone out of anything, what am I going to do? I'm going to make restitution for it. I'm going to pay them back. Four times the amount. Note here the power of restitution. What is going to happen to that line of people who go before Zacchaeus and say, here's the amount you cheated me out of, and Zacchaeus says, no problem. Four times the amount. And then another person comes. What's, what's going what's to happen in their life? They are going to get to experience the power of God through another person. They're going to say, man, this is for real. Zacchaeus has changed. He didn't say he changed. He didn't just say he signed the card. He didn't just say he walked an eye. I got a check for four times the amount he cheated me. That guy is for real. So, sin is messy. And all of us have made our messes. The question is, in, in true repentance, you go back and you make restitution. See, sometime... In order to go forward, you have to go back. So, ball's in your court. If you cheated anyone out of anything, maybe you're an employer. True rep- if you're really sorry about that, true repentance says, I got to make restitution. I got to go on Monday morning and say, look, here's the deal. I'm going to pay it back. Maybe there's some part of your past 
that uh, you need to deal with. It's in a tangible way. Sometimes it's not tangible, it's emotional. And, and, and this is so critical because here's what I see happening and, and I'll just tell this quickly and I'll use, a, I'll use an illustration of marriage. Um, sometimes here's what happens. So a guy has an affair and his wife is like doubled over in pain, right? She's like balled up in a corner in pain. And he gets caught, and he's sorry, truly sorry. He, you know, he, he's, he's a mess. He's sorry. And then he asks forgiveness, and he, and he gets forgiveness. And there's such a weight lifted from his shoulders. He's been forgiven. He wants to tell everybody about it. He wants to be in every Bible study. And he wants to tell his story. Right? He's so excited. But his wife is over there balled up in a corner. And he's leaving her behind. And she's saying, in time out, you're experiencing the joy of the Lord in your new forgiveness, and I'm over here dying. Restitution is to go back and make sure you walk with that person and you demonstrate, like Zacchaeus did tangibly, you demonstrate emotionally that you are truly sorry. That you're willing to do what you need to do. So I have guys come and say, man, I went through this thing. And, you know, you, we walked through it to, uh, with, uh, with Tonch in the men's group. Or, 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 or you knew about it. And, man, I'm so excited. My wife, she, you know, she's not getting over it. <laughs> yeah, duh. <laughs> of course not. And part of repentance, part of restitution is you go back. And you make sure that that you're walking with her. Maybe there's some kids in that thing. I said a guy come up last night and said, yeah, so I got some kids that I haven't talked to for about a lot of years, and I did some things, and they're pretty hurt. Yeah. So you just don't make a call and say, hey, I'm a Christian now. I've been forgiven, clean and clear. Let's go have lunch together and just restore our family. doesn't work like that. True repentance, true restitution says I'm humbling myself enough to go back and I don't know when those kids are going to ever forgive me. I don't even know if they will, but I'm going to do everything I can because I'm a believer now. I'm following Christ. I want to demonstrate to them. I've seen, and you guys have seen it too, people turned off by someone who's just hurt them badly, then they become a Christian, and the next thing you know, they're on the speaking tour, right, with their testimony. And that person says, time out. It killed me. And they never said anything about it. Restitution means you go back and you deal with that. Show the generosity of forgiveness. Show the generosity of grace that God has given you to others. So, ball's in your court. Maybe there's a call you need to make. Maybe it's to an ex-spouse. Maybe it's to your kids. Maybe it's to an employer or an employee. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't, I don't know. But I know that if you're going to move forward, 
Part of repentance is his restitution. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. And he didn't mean the whole house of Zacchaeus were now believers just because Zacchaeus had become a Christian. He was saying, Zacchaeus, you are now the, the bearer of grace, the carrier of grace into your home, and it's just going to be contagious. And then look at verse 10. Do you remember? Jesus was passing through Jericho. And in verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man did not come to see, uh, the Son of Man came to seek and save uh, what was lost. And now uh, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. And the next time we see Jesus, it's the triumphal entry <clears throat> into Jerusalem <clears throat> right before the cross. So we're going to take communion now. Communion is a tremendous reminder, isn't it? Of what Jesus did for us. You say, Ron, that restitution thing, that's, that's hard stuff. I don't know, man. I don't know. I like singing the songs. I like lifting my hands, but that restitution stuff, I don't know. Well, when you hold the bread and the cup, Jesus did some pretty hard things for you, didn't he? pretty hard things for me. He died on the cross for our sins. So as you, if you're a believer, this is for believers only, as you hold the cup and you hold the bread, and by the way, you're going to take two cups, and the bottom cup's going to be the bread, and the top cup's going to be the juice. And how this works is, you lift the top cup off, <laughs> and you'll have one cup with the bread and one cup with the juice, Okay? It's a little housekeeping. But as you do that and as you hold them, remember the body of Christ broken for you. Pay the penalty for your sins. It's hard stuff. His uh, blood poured out for you. It's hard stuff. He did that for you. And just ask Him. Communion is, a, is two things, thanksgiving and examination. So as you're holding that, or as you're waiting for it, just say, Lord, where am I missing this thing? Where am I off track? I don't want to be on a detour. I want to be on the right road. So if I'm off, get me back on track. Show me what I need to do so that I can live in the fullness of grace that you have for me.